I'm John Crawl. Amid one of the more tumultuous periods in American political history, we will talk today about the women's marches and the future of activism in Indiana and America. We will discuss what has prompted so many Hoosiers and so many Americans to take stands and what they hope their efforts will produce. My guests are Keith Potts, organizer MC for the Women's March on Washington, Indianapolis Sister Rally, Aaron Albert, entrepreneur, writer, health outcomes pharmacist, attorney, podcaster, and founder of two companies, and Jennifer Mayer, director of undergraduate studies and clinical associate professor at IU. To join the conversation, call 866-476-3881, email nolimits at wfyi.org, or find us on social media. Now, this news. Welcome to No Limits. I am John Crawl, director of Franklin College's Pulliam School of Journalism, publisher of the statehousefile.com, and your host. We're going to be talking about uh, the women's marches and uh, the future of activism in Indiana and America. If you would like to join the conversation, please give us a buzz at 866-476-3881. You can send us an email at nolimits at wfyi.org. Find us on Facebook at No Limits WFYI or on Twitter at WFYI. My guests are Keith Potts. He is the organizer and MC for the Women's March on Washington Indianapolis Sister Rally. We also have with us returning Aaron Albert, who is an <laughs> – we have a long list of, of titles for Aaron. She is an entrepreneur, a writer, a health outcomes pharmacist, an attorney, a coach, a podcaster, and the founder of two companies – and also with us is Professor, Professor Jennifer Mayer, who is Director of Undergraduate Studies and is Clinical Associate Professor of Gender Studies at IU Bloomington. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Certainly. It's good to have you here. So I'm going to start first. We are at one of those kind of critical points in American history. And I want first, I want to hear from everyone on this, the reason that so many people are engaged right now because any way you slice it, we have not seen probably mass movements like this for oh, probably close to 50 years with uh, the mm-hmm. pro- Vietnam War protests and and all of that. It distresses me a little bit to realize that was 50 years ago. But, mm-hmm. but um, so I'm going to start first with, uh, with Jennifer. Why mm-hmm. do you think people are are responding in the fashion that they are well i mean because we have a maniac um as the head of our country would probably be my first mm-hmm. <laughs> response and i think um you know there's a way in which uh coalitions are being built in very substantive ways right now um not perfectly but um go speaking of just say because you brought up the women's march in dc um there were people there uh, who were under a variety of banners um, and concerns because what this administration symbolizes, what it's, do, what it's doing, affects so many people across so – I mean, it just changes week by week. If you're interested in education, if you're interested in race, if you're part of Black Lives Matter, if you're interested in you know, immigration reform, if you're interested in having control over your uterus, I mean, there are so many – um, I think people are incredibly scared, and I also think that because there are so many issues, it actually puts more people's feet on the ground. Erin? To look at a broader picture, I think the word that I that comes to my mind is change. And anytime you have change, that catalyzes people to start movements like the Women's March, like the protests at the airport with immigration. And, you know, political things aside, particularly for women— There's been challenges with gender parity in this country for decades, if not longer than that. So in particular there, I think, you know, the time, anytime there's large change or large scale change, it kind of pokes the bear, if you will, and gets people to think about, you know, what kind of country we want to live in. Keith. Thanks for having me. Certainly. With with the uh, broad scope of executive orders and statements coming out of the White House, I think we're seeing 
so many rights that we all took for granted to an extent, uh, becoming under siege and under threat. I am frequently uh, thinking back on Donald Trump's nomination acceptance speech at the Republican convention this summer in which he uh, said, I alone can fix it. And I think we didn't necessarily take him seriously that he was going to act in that manner should he be elected president and now that he is our president. And I think we also underestimated the scope of problems that he thought important to fix. So I think that uh, element of us uh, taking some things for granted and also acknowledging the intersectionality of all of these issues uh, has really mobilized and energized a lot of folks. So I'm going to stay with you, Keith, for a moment. Talk to me a little bit about the genesis of, of the Women's March. And I also should tell our listeners, in part because the news is moving so so quickly right now, so fast, uh, we could talk about a lot of things today. We are going to be talking on Thursday about the, the immigration ban specifically. So this, this show is part the first part of a two-part suite. Uh, um, conversations on on the turmoil in this country right now, Keith. What what brought about the Women's March? So the idea for the nationwide movement, I know, started with the Women's March in D.C. and that idea came about the day after the the election on November ninth, uh, as a direct response to who our president elect had become. And I know specifically here in Indianapolis, our sister rally. Uh, the organization started because there were a number of people who wanted to participate in that uh, march in D.C., but simply just couldn't make the trip uh, because it's a big time and a financial commitment to make it out there. So uh, a team of us, and I want to emphasize that I was not alone by any means in this effort, and our team was led by a great woman, Terry Seiler, um, and uh, she helped bring our team together from the former Hillary Clinton office, uh, campaign office here in Indianapolis. And it really was about bringing uh, people of all different walks of life uh, together to speak uh, and address these issues that uh, everyone is feeling at this moment. And we had such a diverse lineup of speakers from varying organizations, uh, faith groups, things like that, and and so many of the messages, the underlying current uh, that kept coming up was a call to action. And that's what I think this uh, march, this organization, because it's not just an event anymore. It's now become an organization nationwide and uh, in all of these individual uh, surrogate rallies and marches throughout the country. It's really become quite a movement that has mobilized so many people. And we've seen that already happening, whether it's people uh, showing up at the airports uh, to protest this uh, immigration ban, or even just uh, before I came here this afternoon, I was on the state house lawn when pe- where people were gathering uh, to save the Affordable Care Act. Speaking of which, we have a call from uh, a listener named Kira, um, who is who is calling from just coming back from the health care rally. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can do what Kira's done. Give us a call at eight six six four seven six three eight eight one. Kira, welcome to the program. Hi there. It was a, it was a great event that we had today. It's sad to see that it, it's not larger than it is. I, I guess I've been involved with activism for, for you know basically my whole life, um, and I went there to tell my story about um, the fact that um, I nearly lost my life, and and the ACA was what saved my life when I was injured in a near fatal car accident. I think about marches like the Women's March that are very important, and I, I think about the immigration, uh, which touches many people. Um, but I'm wondering what um, the future of activism is going to look like once 20 to 30 million people lose their health care. I mean, that is millions of people that I'm sure, I hope, um, will stop it before it happens. But I can't imagine what the action might be in the street um, once we have these people that can no longer receive health care. Thanks very much for the call and the question. Aaron. I think you're probably best positioned to answer that question. <clears throat> well, how much time do we have? <laughs> The Affordable Care Act certainly was a another catalyst to try to get more people covered. Um, there's still Medicaid expansion in some states going on. I think with the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, and this has been my concern all along with both candidates, um, what are we going to replace it with? Um, when you start looking at a country where health care is nearing 20 percent of our total GDP, 
that's backbreaking. We can't sustain that model. So moving forward, I'm not sure what the Trump administration has planned to replace uh, the Affordable Care Act, but we're certainly, even in healthcare, waiting on pins and needles to find out what that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just did a, a, a program on that, and you know, the answer I get from people within the industry is, "Your guess is as good as mine." Basically, as to as to what what is coming. Jennifer, I, I want you to put your scholar's hat on for for a moment here, because there is something different about this moment right now. We have had, you know, with the Clinton presidency, with the second Bush presidency, and with Obama's presidency, it was a divided country. And just about at any given time, half the country really did not like the person who was in the White House. But we did not see the violent reaction that we have seen with this president what do you think accounts for that? Well, I mean, I, I would sort of question a couple of things that you're stating there. And mm. I, you know, this is this is all this has taken place within a week. So it's very mm. difficult um, to sort of make grand pronouncements about why with a capital you know, um, W. Um, I don't think these protests have been violent, mostly. Um, oh, I wasn't with, saying that the protests have been violent. Right, but the response kind of has been reaction, yeah. yeah, has been um, intense. I think because and widespread. Well, I mean, there. I think it's also partially something about him and his. No matter how much you disagreed with, perhaps the policies. I mean, I, I obviously I didn't think the Affordable Care Act went far enough um, in getting people health care, but there's something about having this figurehead who is. Uh, I think in terms of mobilizing people, that is, and getting people so frustrated and going, I mean, he's only been off in an office for seven days or something, right? I might be off on the days there. And the number of things he has said about women, about immigrants, I mean, they're they're so absolutely shocking. I mean, I think we have, you know, without taking a long view, I can just say that I think a lot of people now across the world are sort of in a state of shock, um, not only was this person elected without any kind of experience, the people that he is appointing, Steve Bannon, um, I think that it's a kind of collective uh, uh, sense of shock and just abject fear. I mean, I'm, I just got off of um, a meeting with um, some faculty members and community members in Bloomington about what this even means at the micro level of our university um, and what he's doing with uh, visas and immigration. Like, people are really scared. And sometimes I think fear, and this is just conjecture, because we'd probably have to do larger studies and really get into interviewing the people that have been doing these marches. But my first thought is that, you know, people are really scared, and fear can be a kind of motivator. Um, to just say, like, what else can we do, right? Um, you have to, at a certain point, there's something about gathering together and collectively making a statement of opposition um, because it's touching on so many issues, I think. That's we, my theory anyway. I don't know. <laughs> we've gotten uh, an email comment um, from a listener named Kathy. And, again, if you want to join the conversation by email, you can find us at no limits at WFYI.org. Kathy writes, in regard to why this movement has become so strong at this particular time, your one panelist who replied that it is because we are undergoing change right now is a bit disingenuous. Our, our country has undergone much change in my lifetime, but not since Vietnam have I seen such broad grassroots support. This is not so much about change as it is a revolt against the planks in D.J. Trump's platform. Keith? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, <laughs> Keith, your thoughts? Well, we've seen in the past few days uh, Donald Trump, uh, as our president, has set a couple of records. He uh, lost the popular vote by the largest margin that any president has ever uh, been elected by. Uh, and uh, the Gallup polls that uh, come out routinely with uh, president's uh, disapproval ratings, uh, the in the history of this poll, the presidents uh, have taken anywhere from 500 to 1,200 days to reach a higher than 51 or, or than a 51 percent uh, disapproval rating, mm-hmm. and Donald Trump accomplished it in eight days. <laughs> so we're seeing, um, like your listener or the the person who uh, emailed in, uh, th- there is just an inherent um, 
disdain for the agenda moving forward. And you are seeing a, a grassroots movement, unlike something that we've seen in uh, recent history. And I think it's something that's really exciting. And we're going to see some great change coming about. We are talking about the women's marches and the future of activism on No Limits. My guests are Keith Potts, who is organizer MC for the Women's March on Washington and the Indianapolis Sister Rally, Aaron Albert, who's an award-winning entrepreneur, writer, healthcare professional, attorney, and many other things, and Professor Jennifer Mayer of uh, Indiana University. I'm John Kroll. You're listening to No Limits. Please stay with us. Welcome back to No Limits. I am John Crawl, director of Franklin College's Pulliam School of Journalism, publisher of the statehousefile.com, and your host. We're talking about the women's marches and the future of, of activism. If you want to join the conversation, you can give us a call at 866-476-3881. You can send us an email at nolimits at wfyi.org. You can find us on Facebook at No Limits WFYI or on Twitter at WFYI. My guests are Keith Potts. Uh, he is the organizer or was the organizer and MC for the Women's March on Washington, Indianapolis Sister Rally. He's with us here in the studio. Aaron Albert, who is an award-winning entrepreneur, writer, health co- outcomes pharmacist, attorney, coach, podcaster, and founder of two companies. She's joining us via Skype. And Professor Jennifer Mayer, who is director of undergraduate studies and clinical associate professor of gender studies at Indiana University. She's joining us by by phone. So before we went to the break, um, Keith was talking about the fact that uh, that really the public approval measures for President Trump have done something we haven't seen before in history, too. Normally, after an election, uh, the incoming president gets a bump and the numbers move up, we kind of coalesce as a nation. This time around, that hasn't happened. <laughs> uh, you know, most of the, the public opinion surveys I saw had him, the moment he raised his hand and took the oath of office, had him pegged at about 40% <clears throat> public approval rating. Uh, within a week, that had dropped to 36%. And, um, you know, we'll see where it's, where it's gone in the past few days with the latest news cycle. What accounts for for this? I mean, so is it all tied to the fact that Donald Trump is such um, a you know a unique personality? I'm trying to choose neutral terms here <laughs> uh, and fulfill and fulfill my responsibilities. A unique personality, but how much of it is also the fact that there are some fundamental issues that Americans, at the very least, are conflicted about. Aaron, I'm going to start with you on that. Well, I think he's certainly polarizing whether or not you disagree or agree with his policies. Uh, He did when he was running say that he was going to make these changes and he's definitely living up to that. Um, Whether or not you agree with them, I think is, um, of course, debatable in a political realm. But I wanted to go back to what your listener comment was around being disingenuous about change, because to some extent, I have to respectfully disagree with that in that if we do have someone polarizing who's affecting change, I think that's a positive thing. And furthermore, back to Keith's point, I think one day as a march is just a beginning. And really what I think women need to focus on in this country moving forward is sustaining that groundswell of change. Things like voting with your wallet, Women make 80 to 90 percent of the purchasing decisions in this country. And, you know, when they look at companies, do they have a gender diversity? Do they have um, people at the helm of those companies that are diverse? Things like helping women run for office. You know, President Trump's cabinet is only 13 percent women. The only way we were going to change is if we get more women to run for office. Things like funding women's businesses. Women entrepreneurs are grossly underfunded in this country, and we have to support women-owned businesses. Everything from that to, you know, helping women get on corporate boards. 
time after time, it's been shown that if you have women and diversity on corporate boards, those companies become more profitable. So it's it's nice that there was a march that had you know occurred one day. But to Keith's point, I think we have to sustain this movement over the long haul if we're really going to affect change. And I I should I'd be remiss if I didn't point out you've advanced that argument um, in an essay you wrote uh, shortly after after the march, Aaron, um, that uh, we will post the URL to on on our Facebook page. Um, could I could I add yeah to please that? Just, yeah please. I mean I don't obviously yeah. I don't disagree with anything she's saying I just I also want to caution that you know we should. Um, be yes, we should try to get more women in office, but I think we need to look also say like how is this woman voting? I mean, Betsy DeVos is female. <laughs> I mean, she's not running for office, but I mean, she's terrifying. So when we when we think about gender and and obviously I've devoted my life to decon you know to thinking about gender and gender equality, um, I wouldn't want it to be simply just women, you know, because they have ovaries, they're great. Um, Looking at people's policies is very, very important, and where they come from, and and how their influence works. I just wanted to add that. Well, Margaret uh, Thatcher was a woman. So. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and where I guess uh, I'd like to take this conversation now is is really talking about because one uh, I heard two from from people who were otherwise friendly to the uh, to the marches and the idea of the marches two sort of um, negative responses. First one was nothing anyone can do about unless someone invents a time machine, which was where were all of these folks on election day? Uh, But the second one was really, I hope this is not just about uh, showing up and marching and then everybody disappears for, for, for the next two to four years or whatever. Or until something else outrageous occurs. So uh, the question uh, that I'm going to pose is a simple one, but but not necessarily an easy one to answer. And I'll start with Keith on it. Where do we go from here? Where does this, this movement, if it is a movement, go from here? One thing that was so inspiring uh, with the March on Washington and all of the sister rallies and marches throughout the country and around the world is the organizers were all interconnected and all communicating about best practices and next steps. And one of the most exciting next steps is that we all coordinated and figured out what the best way is to collect as much information from the attendees of these rallies and the marchers at the marches in order to continue to uh, stay in contact with them and engage with them. And, for example, here in Indiana, what we've done is uh, the organizers of the rally, we have created an organization called Hoosiers for Action, which is a political action committee focused on grassroots support for progressive causes and candidates. And we've uh, raised several thousand dollars already to be able to support these uh, progressive candidates in the future. And uh, we're really looking forward to mobilizing all of these folks and these uh, potential volunteers in the future. And I think uh, specifically in terms of strategy for what's next, not just uh, who's going to be doing things, but I think it's sort of a two-pronged approach because we have an administration that is so uh, forthcoming and just going right for it. We have to sort of have both defensive and offensive approaches to both protect the legacy and progress we made under President Obama, as well as to fight to continue uh, to expand upon that uh, in the years ahead. Jennifer, where do you think uh, um, yeah, that's, should go? Yeah, that's really important. And I think, I mean, a couple of things. I feel like when, after, when we have, you know, this huge swell of people physically showing up, there sometimes is a tendency to try to, I don't think this is what you're doing, but certainly on the negative side, trying to minimize it by saying, oh, well, now what are you going to do? That's all you did? Now what? Now what? Now what? And it's absolutely right to ask how we're going to continue our activism. I think that is really important. Burnout is real. I think we have to address that. But I also want to say, you know, one week, two weeks after that, um, sometimes the rhetoric used to say, you know, you all did this, so what?, is also a kind of disabling rhetoric uh, in terms of people who did feel something very strongly about gathering in large groups, and hopefully we'll take that activism elsewhere. Now, 
I am worried. I'm certainly worried. I mean, just seeing, you know, the the um, caller who was saying, I wish there were more people at, at this for the Affordable Care Act. I am worried um, about burnout. And I think particularly when you have uh, such a coalition-based cause and you are focused, rightly so, on intersectionality and oppression, there is a definite chance that people will start to get really burned out, like how many things can I go to? How many phone calls can I make? And I hope with all my heart that that doesn't happen. But I also don't want to minimize, um, you know, this groundswell of just people angry in the streets by saying it's not, quote, unquote, doing anything. Or, uh, you know, I I just get a little little, um, defensive sometimes when I hear that critique. But, of course, we have to do more. No well, question. Well, to play devil's advocate for a second, Jennifer, I mean, here in this state, mm-hmm. we saw, you know, massive public demonstrations against Indiana's right to work law. Yeah, against I know. Against the, yeah. the uh, proposed constitutional ban on same-sex marriage. Right. On the Religious Freedom mm-hmm. Restoration Act. And the result of that activity mm-hmm. in the long term is that many of the people who supported those policies were returned to office, often by right. larger margins than, yeah, than before yeah. they'd started. So uh, there is a, you know, there is a validity to asking, okay, you know, what's going to be the practical effect here? Absolutely, but I don't, I, I mean, but I don't think it means that, I mean, it, it, just because you're out there protesting, it doesn't mean you're going to get exactly what you want from doing it. And if everybody thought that, then there was no point in gathering to make your voice heard it doesn't mean you're always going to win right you have to keep fighting but that doesn't invalidate the protest itself i guess is what i'd want to add for the naysayers and i might uh, we've gotten a, an email question from a listener named marcia um that's on point and if like marcia you want to join the conversation you can you can send us an email at no limits at org. Marsha writes, hi, I'm listening to your show today. I would like to get involved and attend rallies at the State House. Is there a web page that I can follow? Thanks. I suspect, uh, Keith, that you can help her with that. <laughs> Absolutely, I can. So uh, the website for our organization is HoosiersForAction.com. There are uh, biweekly and monthly options to sign up uh, to get uh, email blasts. And we're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at HoosiersForAction. And uh, this organization, the email blast that I'm talking, it's not just uh, the typical email you get from a campaign that's just asking for more money and trying to give you another reason to give us more money. We're sending out, and we sent our first one out uh, just yesterday to uh, about 15,000 email addresses that we were able to compile. It, uh, we call them action emails, and it has specific instructions on what actions any individual can take. Um, including uh, phone numbers to call legislative offices, resources uh, to share on social media, um, and links to find out who your state and local legislators are. So this organization, it's not just about uh, raising money to support these candidates that uh, support our shared values, but it's about mobilizing this energized base. Aaron, uh, again, picking up on the points in your your essay, the, the five other steps, how? Uh, you know, if if we agree that those are important steps to take, how should people go about realizing them? So here's two concrete examples. Number one, I think you can get involved locally in nonprofits that, you know, are about causes that you care about. Um, mm-hmm. For example, I am part of Healthcare Business Women's Association, the Indiana chapter this year. We have over 8,000 members internationally, and we are focused on gender parity and leadership in healthcare. I think that's one way that you can do it at home and get local, but think global. Another option, if you are serious about running for office, try to get educated in that realm. The Women's Campaign School at Yale has an open call for applications beginning February 1st. And it's a fantastic bipartisan program, whatever side of the aisle you're on, you can go get real practical training on how to run for political office. There's two concrete examples. Gotten an email uh, from a listener named George. And again, our email address is no limits at WFYI.org. George writes, for the first time in my 39 years, I fear protesting against anything the new administration may enact for fear that protesting may be deemed un-American 
or considered an act of terrorism. Many others I know feel the same. Has this level of widespread fear existed before? Many thanks, George. Jennifer, I'll throw that one to you. Um, well, I think uh, it certainly has um, existed before. I mean, people were put on FBI lists in, in the 60s for protesting. Um, you know, the government had uh, informants and plants that, you know, um, tried to break up um, all kinds of left-wing political movements on at universities in particular. Um, I certainly would caution somebody not to be afraid. Um, but I, And I also think that we're in um, a different... Uh, a different kind of time now, um, and I think there is so much in terms of electronically and how we can communicate with each other about what's going on that um, it both makes us more susceptible but also makes us more able to um, rally people behind us if we do feel like we're going to be, you know, victims of that. I think it's, you know, it's particularly difficult, I mean, say, for somebody who is here as an international student, you know, I understand being afraid of what's going to happen um, because, again, I think the person that's in office is, um, I mean, his powers are limited to a certain extent, but he's petulant and he's vindictive. Um, I, I can't guarantee any individual person that their life won't be affected by going to a protest, um, but I would also say that uh, you should do it anyway, and I don't think you have too much to fear. Uh, and if you are particular, you know, if you are a citizen of this country, and even if you're not, you still have rights. Um, and you know, if they get you too scared to make your voice heard, then they're just winning. Keith, uh, have you have you heard that? I mean, when you're trying to get people to come out. Absolutely. Uh, to these that they, they say, I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm with you, but I just won't show up. I'm scared. Absolutely. So many people have reached out to say, what are other ways I can help? What are other ways I can get involved other than showing up at a protest or a rally? And, you know, I'm not in the business of telling somebody how they should feel mm. or, or uh, determining somebody else's feelings for them. But for them, that's why I say the rest of us who are comfortable doing it, that's why we have to do it. Yeah. Uh, there are... So many people uh, um, that would prefer us not be able to do this at all, including our currently serving president, unfortunately. And that is all the more reason the our, our rights are at risk when we ourselves are complacent uh, or, or allow them to be put at risk. So I think these demonstrations, even when it's simply 50 people showing up on the South Lawn of the State House to discuss personal stories about the Affordable Care Act, uh, and how their lives would be affected if it were completely taken away, we're showing up. We're being seen. We're getting in front of the camera on the radio. We're making sure that uh, those of us who want to and feel safe and are willing to speak out are doing it so that those who don't feel comfortable doing it uh, know that they're still being protected and there's still people looking out for them. Ballpark, uh, how many of the people that, that you contact and ask... Is it one in ten who says no? I'm too scared, or is it one in four? One in oh, you know, you have a better. Uh, I would say yeah. it's maybe one in fifty, or or something along those lines. The the community that has been sort of put together in Indiana and specifically Indianapolis, because we have seen over the past few years several large gatherings at the state house. Um, with regarding to the Religious Freedom Act or uh, bills restricting women's health rights. And uh, people feel this uh, sense of community, both here and anywhere that these um, gatherings are held. And I think it's uh, really inspiring. And it was just so great to hear at this rally, specifically on the 21st, how many people came up to us and told us that it was their first time coming to something like this. And they're really looking forward to doing it again. We're talking about the women's marches and the future of activism here on No Limits. My guests are Keith Potts who was instrumental in uh, the Women's March in Washington, Indianapolis Sister Rally, Erin Albert, who is a Renaissance woman, and uh, Professor Jennifer Mayer, who is with Indiana University. She's a professor of gender studies. If you want to join the conversation, please give us a buzz at 866-476-3881 or find us on social media. I'm John Crawl. Please stay with us.
Welcome back to No Limits. I am John Crawl, director of Franklin College's Pulliam School of Journalism, publisher of the StatehouseFile.com, and your host. We're talking about the women's marches and the, the future of activism. My guests are Keith Potts. He was organizer MC for the Women's March on Washington, Indianapolis Sister Rally. He's in studio with us. Aaron Albert, who's an entrepreneur, writer, health outcomes, pharmacist, attorney, coach, podcaster, founder of two companies, and I suspect only occasionally sleeps. She's joining us via Skype. And uh, Professor Jennifer Mayer, who is Director of Undergraduate Studies and Clinical Associate Professor of Gender, Gender Studies at Indiana University. She's joining us by phone. If you want to join the conversation, you can send us an email at nolimits at wfyi.org. You can find us on Facebook at No Limits WFYI. Track us down on Twitter at WFYI. Or you can do what a listener named Leonard has done and give us a call at 866-476-3881. Leonard, welcome to the program. Uh, John, it's been a long time. Oh, hi, Len. How are you? I'm good. That's good. Um, <clears throat> While uh, Trump can and will ignore the huge demonstrations across the country, uh, Congress people cannot afford to do so, mm. because those members who are demonstrating are their constituents. Many of them have never come out for a demonstration before, and their, their arousal <clears throat> will have some effect upon the <clears throat> uh, election that's coming up in two years. So I say they should take care. <laughs> Thanks very much for the call. It's good to hear your voice again, Len. Thank you. Take care. And in the interest of full disclosure, I probably ought to say that uh, prior to my, my current roles, I was executive director of what was then the Indiana Civil Liberties Union, uh, and Len was a board member. I don't want to withhold any information from the audience. So is part of of the strategy then to focus on on attempting to achieve change in in 2018. Keith, I'll throw that one to you. Absolutely. We have uh, some really influential uh, senatorial races coming up in 2018, including Indiana Senator Joe Donnelly up for re-election, as well as every seat in our United States House of Representatives is up for re-election every two years. And it's pretty typical for a new president when they come in in the first midterm election to lose some seats. Uh, And when you compare the numbers of disapproval ratings and the number of seats lost, we're looking at uh, the Democrats taking back the United States House of Representatives uh, after the 2018 midterm elections, potentially, uh, which would be uh, quite a big change and uh, quite a big uh, positive thing uh, for those of us who are a little uneasy about the Trump administration uh, having a Republican Congress uh, right alongside them. And that's definitely part of this movement is to mobilize folks, to change up uh, Congress, to elect more folks who have the the shared values and shared ideals uh, that we all expressed and that the uh, Women's March on Washington uh, committee put together a platform for with a, a intersectional broad list of uh, values and ideals that uh, that we are demonstrating on behalf of and that we're fighting for. Now there is a school of thought out there that there is a you know a certain method to to what President Trump and his advisors are doing, and that is to that they want to create a kind of by moving this quickly a kind of Trump fatigue, so that people okay. you know stop responding with this kind of force uh, just because they get tired, they have lives to lead, all of the those those sorts of things. You know, is that uh, a valid concern? I'm going to throw this one both to Jennifer and and to Aaron, and I'll start with Aaron on it. Is that a valid concern, do you think, and is it something that would worry you? Yeah, to Jennifer's earlier point, I think burnout is a real issue. And, you know, when there's this much change this rapidly, we just talked the last week all of this change has occurred, people can get really exhausted by that. So the point of my previous essay and kind of my, my mantra all along around this is, you have to put in the work over the long term. You can't just do it one day and expect, you know, big changes. To somebody's point earlier, 
Trump is not necessarily paying attention to all these rallies. However, there are others in Congress or the Senate or whatever, maybe the case that have to pay attention to that because they have constituents. But my point is, let's take this energy and put it into something that can sustain longer term results, be that running for office or serving in a nonprofit or getting more women on corporate boards or even voting with your wallet. I think one day is great. Let's take that energy and move it into something long term. We've gotten uh, actually, Jennifer, let me give you a chance to jump in, too. Oh, I mean, I, I I'm certainly on board. I, I mean, the larger question was is uh, eliciting this outrage part of a larger plan by Trump, and maybe by Bannon, I would say, more than Trump, just to, um, in fact, mobilize um, burnout. I certainly wouldn't put it past them. Um, I don't know. I've heard people say this um, on a number of occasions. Uh, It would not be surprising to me. Um, that if that's what was happening, and I think that that's something we have to, um, we definitely have to guard against. We've gotten, uh, and I'm going to take the, uh, try to synthesize this, because we've gotten quite a few emails that are provoked a kind of mini debate in and of itself. Some folks uh, um, saying that that even though they didn't support um, President Trump, didn't vote for him. They object to to uh, him being called a maniac on the air. I think it was Jennifer, right? Yeah, he, that's fine. To, they can object all they like. Uh, but other folks <laughs> sort of saying uh, in response, you know, that's the way he he responds to people. Um, he should he should have to take what he's he's giving out. Um, I guess what I want to talk about is the the question of of tone and all of that, because there is another school of thought also that by, by, you know, trying to reduce all of this to, um, you know, a very angry, almost primal level. Um, the president is, is putting what should be a contest of ideas into a place where ideas are hard, hard to discuss. Jennifer, since you were the sort of the focal point of the mini email debate, I'm going to give you the first word on that one. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I guess people are uh, someone at least is objecting to my use of the term. I think the idea that I use that term is offensive when we have elected a man who has bragged about sexual assault. Um, who has said any number of completely outrageous, um, whatever his views, very non-presidential, undignified outbursts, um, and he is now uh, the president of the United States, I think that that is far more serious than any adjective I could use to describe him. I guess, you know, um, and the the idea that, okay, now he's president, I didn't vote for him, now he's president, we have to um, get in line or we need to be respectful. Protest has always been part of American history. It is respectful. It is American. Um, if we want to say that once somebody is elected, we are therefore to get in lockstep and respect them, I mean, that's, you know, that's a hallmark of fascism. And that's just not something that I'm going um, to go along with at this point. Is all I'd say, I guess. Sarah, welcome to the program. <laughs> Hello. Hello, Sarah. You're on the air. Hello. Um, I just have a um, a worry in my life right now. I came to America not uh, as an em- immigrant, actually. I moved here solely because I was married to an American who had a, a family member who had a major problem with cancer and small children. So we moved here to help. Uh, due to a course of events, I've lived here for over 30 years, and I have a green card. I uh, I marched downtown in Indianapolis with all those wonderful women the day after the inauguration, not as a protest against Trump, which is what a lot of people are suggesting we did, but as a protest to say women should be equal, should be treated decently, and should be able to make their own choices about their own bodies and have all the rights that everyone else has. Since that situation, 
the feeling in this country has, in my opinion, deteriorated towards those of us that are not American citizens. Mm -hmm. And when I hear people say even non-American citizens have rights, sadly, we don't feel that we really do mm -hmm. in this environment. And I have to say that marching to me has made me more nervous. I will still continue to march. But should I be earmarked as a troublemaker and someone that the administration wants to get rid of, bearing in mind that Mr. Pence was actually the governor of Indiana, and I've seen laws here change in a way that makes me uncomfortable, I could be banished from this country. I have grown-up children who have lives here and wives and jobs, and so I'm now looking at possibly being alienated from my own family. This makes me incredibly distressed, and I don't feel very confident about the future. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for the call and, and for sharing your story, Sarah. Um, Thank you. And Thank you. I, I, That's horrible. I'm so sorry. Because we don't uh, have a constitutional lawyer <laughs> on the air, I will fall back to my earlier. The word citizen and the rights are in the Constitution. The word citizen is not part of the Constitution. So right. the rights extend yeah. to, to everyone. And I might add that the Declaration of Independence, which doesn't carry the force of law but is a spiritual thing, while it restricts in the famous preamble uh, <laughs> the rights to men, um, we can assume that's the collective says that they belong to all human beings. Thanks very much for the call and for sharing Thank that, you. Sarah. So, uh, Jennifer, Aaron, mm -hmm. Keith, how do you, what do you say to, to someone like Sarah? Who are, do you want you, to, Anyone, and we'll do this Quaker I, style, yeah, however I the mean, spirit just moves. Quick, I feel for this person individually, who, for her, for making that call. Um, my husband also has a green card. Um, I, I mean, there's things we could say individually. Are you on that list of those actual countries that they seem to be targeting? Um, I think you could at least feel a little bit secure that you're not on that list. Um, that, you know, um, because of Brexit, you know, Trump likes England right now. I mean, these are all things that could possibly make you feel better on an individual level, but that don't address the larger issues. So somebody, yeah, I mean, that would speak to somebody who knows more about um, this uh, doctrine and how it works out legally than I could, than I do. How much of this? We've gotten a Facebook message from a listener named Robert, and you can find us on Facebook at uh, No Limits WFYI. Robert writes, a man that winks to racists moved on to build a cabinet roster of destruction. Now the party that raged against executive orders is swimming in them. Bad ones. What's not to love? How much of this, and I, I don't think there's any other way to, to go about how much of this, uh, and I, I should preface it by saying that, that neither political party has, sadly, a monopoly on hypocrisy, but uh, how much of this is that so many of the things that Republicans said they abhorred about Barack Obama's presidency, they're now embracing um, with Donald Trump's presidency, is fueling this this anger. Keith, you're nodding your head, so I'm going to go to you. Absolutely. I mean, first, a, a thought that just keeps rolling through my mind is our currently serving president spent the better part of the last few years working to delegitimize President Barack Obama and uh, with regard to his citizenship and birth certificate. So mm -hmm. I, I struggle with the notion of automatic ordained respect for anybody simply because of the desk that they sit at. But um, remind me of the starting question well, before question I went off on really that. Was, was the question uh, that uh, was the question really of hypocrisy, um, the fact that, uh, that you know, there's a rally around many of the same devices that uh, that Republicans argued were unconstitutional when Barack Obama did them. I think the greatest difference is that uh, the Republican obstructionism that we saw over the last few years was just that. It was obstructionism from Republicans because a Democrat was in the White House. The obstructionism, because it is obstructionism that we're seeing now, I think is not Democrats obstructing a Republican, uh, a Republican but rather it's um, 
like-minded progressive people defending the values that they hold dear and that their constituents hold uh, dear, uh, protecting those values from being torn apart in our Constitution, from being trampled on by um, by orders that are so much farther overreaching uh, th- than we've seen in a long time. And uh, I think... The, that that is the the crux of it is it's mm-hmm. not a a battle with regard to partisanship but a battle with regard to decent humanity we're we're getting close on time i'm going to try to squeeze in one more call roberta welcome to the program thank you certainly um i am as appalled as all of your guests are about this uh immigration ban but i think it's really important that we not focus so much on it that we lose sight of other kind of less emotional issues that may in fact have longer term and even bigger implications. And one example of that is removing the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mm -hmm. Chief of Staff, and the National Intelligence Advisor from the principals for the National Security Council and putting Steve Bannon, a political (laughs) operative, with extremist views. This is a group that literally makes life and death decisions that can affect the entire world. Another is we have kind of fallen behind on looking at Trump's uh, income taxes, and this immigration ban interestingly includes no country in which he has uh, business holdings, despite the fact they produce far more tariffs in this country. And there are many others, his, his nominees. And all I'm wanting to urge people is don't get, just focus on one thing, to mm-hmm. be active in looking at this broad spectrum of very serious and dangerous things. Thanks mm-hmm. very much for the call and for sharing your thoughts, Roberta. You're welcome. Certainly. We are getting very close to the end of the program here. If I could take the liberty of summing up, and I'll just sort of ask everyone for an amen, it sounds like the message I'm hearing from from everyone is, first, pay attention, and two, stay involved. Is that a fairly accurate summary? Keith? Absolutely. A phrase I keep using is, let's turn our anger into action. Mm-hmm. Jennifer? Yeah, of course. I agree completely. And Aaron, you've got about 10 seconds. Couldn't agree word. more. Well, I would like to thank all of you. This is one of those shows where, and I love to thank all of our listeners for great questions and comments. I apologize we couldn't get to all of them. I hope you'll come back on Thursday when we are going to be talking about the immigration ban. And we'll be able, I hope, to to get some of your great questions and comments. And I'd like to thank my guests, Keith Potts, Aaron Albert, and Jennifer Mayer, for what's been a lively and provocative conversation. I'm John Crawl. You've been listening to No Limits. Thank you for joining us. No Limits is a production of 90.1 WFYI Public Radio, Indianapolis. Executive producer, Michelle Johnson. Producer, Shannon Cagle. Interactive media coordinator, Scott McAllister. Technical producers, Cedric Freeman and Chris Flood. And board engineer, Joe Hatcher. Abby Cherzini screens our calls. No Limits is made available through IPBS, Indiana's public broadcasting stations.